0: Hello and welcome to Chilling with Charlie, episode 2. Today I have with me Selby Lestia, who has won the AFL Fantasy competition for the past two years. In this chat, hopefully we'll get some tips, some tricks, and maybe one of us will prevent Selby from going three in a row. Running a podcast costs money. Chilling with Charlie is proudly sponsored by Betfair Australia. Betfair operates a betting exchange and is licensed in the Northern Territory of Australia. They are not a bookmaker, and you can see how they champion data modelling by checking out bit.ly forward slash Betfair Charlie, gamble responsibly. Selby, thanks for joining me. Maybe just tell us a bit about your background to begin with.
1: Yep, obviously with AFL, it's the fantasy side where I've been involved in. I won the comp two years ago by a record margin by about 500 points and got myself a Hilux and tickets to the grand final and footy guernseys and all sorts of stuff. And then last year, I actually came a draw in first places again and won a car and bit of cash and grand final tickets. So that's kind of got me on the map in terms of the football world and, and the stats on and, and fantasy. Why did you choose to
0: take AFL fantasy quite seriously over other things like maybe draft stars? What's the appeal about fantasy?
1: So I play a bit of footy myself and have done for since I was a kid. So I enjoy football, work in finance and, and numbers, so I'm okay with the numbers. It kind of a bit of a blend between both, numbers and and footy, which I enjoy. And since I was at school, we'd have comps in fantasy or dream team, what it was called back in the day. So I've been playing for a, f- a fair while in that nature and obviously it was a bit of fun at the start. And then more recently the last couple of years taking it a lot more seriously given that I've got a bit of a talent for it or yeah, I've proven the last couple of years so I've been taking it pretty seriously and and trying to leverage off that. Maybe just tell us about
0: how you go about picking a team. Before the season starts what
1: sort of things are you looking at with regards to your players? My theory is that you, you want to pick players who are going to improve on what they're priced at. So I look at how they're priced and what score they need to get to reach that price and then what factors there could be for them to improve and, and increase on in that price. So that could be something as little as someone like a Matt Crouch last year averaged 105 or so. So he's priced at 105, but there's a game he did his hamstring and scored 30. So if you take that score out, he's actually would have averaged 108, 109. So I believe that he's, he's a bit of value. Or it could be something where... A player's left the club and opened up some more opportunities for someone like at Frio Dockers with Lockie Neal leaving. Someone like a a Brayshaw will get a lot more minutes in the midfield and should get a bump in score and outperform what they're priced at. So I assess every player individually on different metrics, whether that's price per minute, scenarios such as eliminating their injury-affected scores, uh, looking at their last five games or last half of the year because quite often that's a great indicator for the, the year to come. Someone like a Jack Steele from St Kilda averaged 95 on the year, but that was made up of 80 in the first half and 115 in the second half. So I believe he's looking more likely to be 115 than he is at an 80, um, which means that he, I think he's underpriced as well. So I, I look at a whole lot of different scenarios, go through them. Obviously, a lot of it is a guessing work, but I try to um, make sure the numbers do back that up and, and hope to pick more players who do break out or improve on their previous season than don't. Will you look to things like JLT form? I do a bit, but I get pretty convinced on the numbers prior to JLT that it's almost that I I hope that they don't perform in the JLT because I don't want them to be so popular. So it's a hard thing to watch the JLT. Obviously, you want your players who you have in mind to pick to go well, but it's also you don't want them to go too well. So it's conflicting. I'm glad there's only two games this year of JLT because, as I said, after three or four, if you've picked someone to break out and they all of a sudden have a couple of cracking games in JLT, a lot of other people will jump on. So I certainly use that as a measure of seeing what their role is and seeing how they look. But it's certainly not the be-all and end-all. End all. And sometimes someone who's popular throughout the pre-season and then has a few poor JLT games, a lot of people do jump off. Uh, but I'm happy to, to stick with them and seeing what it's like in the, in the proper stuff.
0: How about forwards and defenders? So I guess they're notoriously hard to pick because you might not pick a team that's structurally sound as opposed to, I guess,
1: a team that's good for fantasy purposes. Yeah, definitely. So up until this year, you always want your forwards and defenders as players who play in the midfield. So they might be classified as a defender or a forward because I've spent time in the forward line, but either you think they're going to have a change in role or realistically they play 50-50 or majority midfield because that's where the points are. It's it's too risky picking someone uh, like a Robbie Gray was great when he was a midfielder, but now he's playing as a forward and he might get a good score when he kicks five goals but he has to rely on kicking those five to get a good score whereas midfielders they're constantly getting their 20 to 30 possessions and getting their points up so you always target players who will get midfield minutes the difference will be this year with a new change of rule with the kick-in rule I'm not sure if you've followed that it's now you don't have to kick to yourself to play on at a fullback and the player on the marks further back on the mark. So it's likely that players will take advantage of that, people who kick the ball out from the back line and run an extra five metres before kicking it, which will constitute a kick and count as an extra three points. So this year, players such as Cade Simpson or Jake Lloyd from Sydney Swans who are defenders who take the kick in duties before they might not have run out and taken the kick out so they wouldn't have counted as a kick. Now it does count as a kick. They're arguably oh, 10 to 15 points underpriced. So it's going to be interesting this year that you might want to target more players who play proper back line and take the kickouts because they're the ones who I believe are underpriced. Whereas in previous years, I'd look at someone like a Callum Mills, Andy McGrath from Essendon who are likely to be midfield classified as defenders but I think they'll play midfield this year so that'd be I'd be all over them in previous years but I think I'm gonna skip on them and look more towards players like a uh, Brody Smith from Adelaide who looks to be having their kicking duties and might not get those possessions and tackles but he'll be all he needs is 10 kickouts a game and that's an, that's enough points for him to bump up to be relevant with
0: a lot of rule changes, is that sort of the main rule change? Obviously, there's the Ruckman rule change as
1: well with that effect. Yeah, there's, there you a, get... there's a couple. The more I'm looking at it and thinking about it, I think the more it's going to affect fantasy, which is tough because I, I felt like I got myself a pretty good structure for picking a starting side and what sort of players you want, whereas now it's throwing a bit of a curveball. One, obviously, the, the defenders, as I mentioned. Also, I'm not sure if this will have as much of an effect, but the 6-6-6, it means that, players like a Sisley who might have dropped off his high half forward who played up the ground in, in the pass and taken a few intercept marks might not be as free so he might get a bit of a cop but then again he's going to pick up those points because he will take the kick-ins so that one's interesting to watch I don't think that's going to have a big impact but the Ruckman one I think will obviously it's a bad look on the game obviously I think that's where the angle they're going at the AFL for them to have the rule that they're be more relaxed with a prior opportunity for Ruckman to grab it out of the ruck. And that is because people like Richmond were playing a Sean Grig in the ruck or a small player. And to date they've just lost the ruck tuck, which isn't a huge disadvantage. But then they had an extra run around the ground to help them with their high pressure football. Whereas now, if Sean Grigg went up at the ruck against a Brody Grundy, Grundy could just grab it out of the ruck, push him to the side and not worry about getting done holding the ball because if he gets tackled, it's not going to be holding the ball. But if he does get it, he'll kick it long and and hurt them the other way. So I think a lot of teams will start playing two ruckmen, which will start impacting players like a Max Gorn, who was to date one of the better ruckmen in the comp. Now, if he's going to have to share the duties, is he now going to get a bit of a cop in scoring? And then someone like a Brody Grundy, who last year feasted on playing against someone like a Sean Grigg or a second Ruckman who was not up to it or not a proper Ruckman he used to get a lot of points during games on that whereas now he's going to come up against two solid Ruckman potentially and he could copy hit with that as well so the Ruckman's going to be very interesting to see how that plays out with the New rules. I recall listening to
0: uh, one of your podcasts earlier and you were talking about how you actually like to look at players who have high rates of ownership and then you sort of make a call on certain players that you won't pick that have those high rates of ownership could you maybe walk us through that process how you came to it and how that's
1: obviously got you two wins on the trot yeah so to win the comp and to succeed from the pack you obviously want to have a team slightly different to the rest so they call it a pod or a point of difference you want to pick a player who a lot of other people don't have He might have ownership of 1% to 2%. If he does really well, then you can get a a kick on the opposition and it's a good strategy. But the thing is people are popular for a reason. Obviously, they're well-priced or they're looking to be a good scorer. So it's hard to find someone who is less than 5% ownership who you do think will be a good player. It's, it's, It's pretty tough. So the way I've tried to make my team more unique in the past has been rather than picking a player of low ownership it's been avoiding a player of high ownership. So my lowest ownership-owned player in the past might have been a 10%, 15% owned player. So it's quite popular. If they were to fail, I'm not going to fall by myself. There'll be a lot of the other people in the competition to fall as well. But by avoiding that popular player, if he were to fail, then you could get a big jump on the competition. So two years ago, Jared Ruffhead came in off, off his injury, very underpriced, very popular, but... I just knew that a key forward it was, would have been pretty tough to come back into the comp and there's doubts he's ever going to go back to near his best so I took the punt to avoid him even though he was owned by about 70% of the competition and with with the ownership that's another killer fish too it's the actual numbers aren't actually realistic if someone's owned by 70% of the comp they're probably owned by 95% of the people who know what they're doing or someone owned by 10% probably 20 because there's a lot of the lower end teams who just sort of pick players they like or random teams so yeah so someone like a roughhead a lot of the comp would have had him Um, so I went against him and he had a pretty mediocre year and that that really helped me Uh, last year I tried to do the same thing with Tom Mitchell who was again the most popular player in the comp owned by about 70% obviously the number one player in the comp and the best player in the comp and I took a punt there but that didn't pay off he actually went got three big 150 point scores in a row but avoiding him it meant that I could spend my money elsewhere and go ride elsewhere so I was still within touch I was about one thousand, two hundred thousand in the comp out of the 150 odd thousand but obviously that hurt me and I got him in and then he had his run of three 60s in a row I think it was so should have I he had those 60s when I didn't own him I think I would have certainly paid off obviously it didn't pay off and I end up jumping on him but by still showing that I could win it at the end, showed it wasn't the worst tactic in the world because even though he did well, the players I had did well. Whereas if I had gone a real unique player and they flopped, you're automatically going to be left behind. So I think there's more chance that you'll do well by avoiding the popular one than picking a real unique pod.
0: Yeah, it sounds very interesting. Obviously, seems like you know a lot about AFL fantasy and roughly how many points players are getting, where they're getting them from. How do you go about researching that? So, what sort of tools, resources, websites
1: do you use? Yeah, so I watch a lot of footy for one, and that's not as a chore. I love; I'm a lover of footy, so I'm, I happily watch uh, three, four, five games of footy during the week, and all the footy shows and that, just to keep up with it all. And I think that's important. There's there's players who play games like this and, and daily fantasy sports who are either lovers of footy and just do it based on what their eye is. And also there's numbers guys who do it based off the numbers. But I think it's, you want to have a bit of both and just because someone's putting up some good numbers, but if you've watched them I and you, you realise that that's not sustainable, it's good to know that from a, an eye point of view. But on the flip side, the numbers might back up someone who you wouldn't probably look twice at if you were just looking on, on face value. So I watch a lot of footy. The stats I get, I just just get the raw kicks, handballs, marks, tackles, minutes per game stats from uh, the AFL website and then run my own scenarios through a few spreadsheets to get points per minute and pricing scenarios such as if they were to play, if they played at 65%, if they got a bump to 75% this year, what's, what's sort of scoring can you see that being? So I do a, a few analysis such
0: as that. Would you be comfortable talking about maybe an example? I know you mentioned you're expecting Brayshaw's to usage to go up with yeah. uh, Lockie Neal. So under your sort of scenarios, how are you assessing his extra points, minutes, that sort yeah.
1: of thing? Yeah, so got nothing from me. Either. Just off the top of my head, I think he averaged 65 last year. So his price at 65 or maybe 68. But he played 68% game time last year or 65% game time which meant that he got a point per minute every time he was on the ground. Average midfielders play, or the low end play 75, such as a crouch, but the high end midfielders will play 90%. Someone like a Tom Mitchell played 90% last year. Patrick Cripps, plus 90, because he obviously can go forward as well. Second year player Brayshaw is not going to go up to the 90, but I think there's no reason why he won't go with an extra year in pre-season, fitter, stronger more opportunity with Neil going. There's no reason why that's going to go to 75%, which means his score will go from, if he scored as he did last year, 65 will jump to 75. So he's immediately 10 points underpriced. But second years typically get a good natural progression as well. So there's no reason why that's not going to bump to an extra five points per game just on how well he's going. And then you look at last year, there are a few games, one when Gaffy. Hit him in the third quarter uh, early in the year. He played a lot more forward and wasn't as heavily involved. So you are always throwing an extra five points. So I see him going closer to an 85, maybe even touching that 90 average. The back end of last year, second half year, he averaged 80. So something like that. You look at the his minutes last year, what he's priced at, and where you think he can go, and then you, you think he's 15 points under underpriced and he's all of a sudden a good buy. What hurts him is it is midfield status only and you can only pick eight of them and that's where the points are. And there's a lot of good buys and also great options in there in terms of high scorers. So do you spend that much money for Brayshaw and then get someone who's a decent midfielder or do you get a Gibbons from Carlton, mature age, he could well go 80 as well. He's cost 170000 rather than 300000 And then all of a sudden you can walk in there with a Jack McRae who might go 120 over someone who might average 105 who you would have got otherwise. So a lot of it's weighing up what's the better option from the start. And luckily to date I've got more right than wrong. But obviously I can certainly see, like, looking at that scenario, I don't know what the best way to go about that is.
0: Also remember from listening to you earlier, you do keep track of certainly come the grand final your opponents' teams. At what stage do you start thinking about your opponents and your specific player matchups, and how do you go about thinking about a trade for that week
1: to get pick up the win? I think that's one thing which has set me apart in the last couple of years. I look a lot more about what I think other players or teams will be doing when coming to make my decisions. Obviously, the popular trade-ins, again, a bit like the popular players, obviously the a good decision. There's a lot of certainly reason and merit behind them being popular trade-ins, but I typically try to go against the grain and pick players who I don't think people will pick. And then, in terms of matchups, so two years ago I was winning by about 300 points with four rounds to go, and I thought, well, even though I, I like my team, the best way for me to win the game would be matching or having as little differences between my team and the team coming second and third as possible because all of a sudden if they only have three players different and they have to catch up 300 points it's going to be pretty tough but if there's six or seven it's only 10 or 15 points each player so I look at the second third fourth fifth look at a common player which they all have who I don't have and trade out a unique option of mine so two years ago it was like a Dyson Heppel or a Clayton Oliver I owned and no one else owned in the top 10 and they've been great for me all year to get me in to that position, but I almost felt guilty getting rid of them because they've been so good to me. But I thought I, my best chance of winning is trading them out for someone like Azorko, who I didn't actually rate as a as a pickup because I know he gets tagged too easily. But I thought if I own him, it means that if he gets 150, it's not going to hurt me because the two guys behind me have him as well. Or if he gets a 20, it's not going to hurt me because the two guys behind me have him as well. And then last year, I was almost the other side of the, the equation where I was about 200 points short with three weeks to go and thought I'm going to have to just take a few risks here so I picked up players like Gary Ablett and Mitch Duncan and unique players who had a good draw and good run I still thought they were going to perform well but I wouldn't have picked them over other players if it was just a who do I think is going to score the highest was to give me the most chance of catching the opposition and they actually really did well to a point where I hit the lead with one round to go and then I had to really wind it back and all of a sudden look at the teams behind me and get rid of mitch duncan and get rid of oh i got rid of another one of my unique players i got in and hindsight, obviously i came to draw draw last year in the comp and there's a bit of controversy and there's a fair bit made of that which is all all pretty fun but one of my trades last year was mitch duncan out and i got in matt crouch mitch duncan was playing I think they were playing gold coast or Freer, one of the two they had a very easy draw and He's a bit of an outside player and does very well in, in big wins down at Geelong, so I had no doubt he was going to score 100, 110, 120. Matt Crouch had a matchup against Carlton again, easy draw. I thought he was going to go well, but I thought the the teams coming second, third, and fourth all had Matt Crouch. My best, even I think Mitch Duncan probably will outscore Matt Crouch. My best bets to stick with match Crouch. So I I made that, I pulled the trigger there and Crouch won, I got 95 and Duncan got 120. So should I have not done that trade and not changed my team at all, I I would have won it outright. But I still believe that that decision put me in the best position to win the comp. The one move which I didn't see happening was there was a team coming fourth who we had the exact same team, except he had Zorko and I had Duncan. And he didn't have Crouch and I predicted that he would make the trade to get Crouch in because Zorko had been getting tagged and being no good and Crouch had this good matchup. So I made that trade to think, if I make that trade, I'm beating him by 30 points, there's no way he can then catch me. But he ended up making another trade, which I didn't see happening, which was Tom Mitchell out and Seb Ross in, which was a great move by him. And uh, that's the move which then was the last round of the year when Seb Ross needed the 120 to win. For him to win or 121 and he got 120 on the dot so that's what forced the draw so I might look a bit too much into it the opposition teams but I, I do believe that that's where you can get a bit of a not an advantage but you can put the odds more in your favor
0: that's interesting so there's a bit of cat and mouse towards the end so you're trying to think about what players they're going to switch are for and you're trying to I guess do
1: the same thing on them yeah and I'm not it would be interesting to talk to the guys coming second third fourth and see if they did the same thing and had that same logic but that's as i said not this year it was a year before when i when i won it i won by 500 and then there's a guy who was clearly second for a long time and his team name was kamikaze midgets and i almost felt like i knew him personally because i could have kind of tried to guess what trades you do and then once lockout was on i'd check his team and Sure enough, he made those same changes or something. So it was, it was interesting for, for the last yeah four or five weeks, I'd, I'd certainly take a look at the opposition's
0: teams. Yeah, sweet. You also mentioned you look at who your players are playing as opponents. So towards the end, I think you were saying, you know, Geelong, they might have had Gold Coast and that sort of thing. Yeah. What sort of role does that play in your thinking of picking players? Do you look at a player matchup in game? Maybe, I don't know, if Gold Coast had a tagger or something yeah, like a that? Yeah, taggers
1: are big. I'm always cautious of taggers and try to avoid players who are susceptible to tags, like a Zorko or a Gaff to date, but he proved me wrong. He showed he could play through it last year. But yeah, someone like Gold Coast was giving up points last year. I think they were a bit of a basket case and were ready for the year to be over. And scores for winning teams are a lot higher than scores for losing teams and than scores in close matches. You get a lot more, especially by the end when the pressure's off, a lot more easy marks and kicks and points like that. But obviously, matchups change from week to week to week, so you can only really, I personally only really look at that in the back half of the year, or back couple of games of the year. In terms of players' matchups, a lot of people do look at someone's averages against certain teams and say oh gee this guy's his last five times he's played this team he's averaged 30 possessions and so many points so they look to get him in that week I'm always all captain make him captain of the team I'm always a bit more cautious about that because I, in my opinion I think well if he's dominated them the last five weeks then there's all of a sudden the, the opposition coach might start doing something different and start tagging him so I don't look at that as much as other people might do. Yeah. Who has been
0: your favourite player who has been very underpriced and you've gone, absolutely, I'm just going to take him?
1: Both, a lot of luck were involved and both the same players last two years. So Chad Wingard's been pretty good for me. Again, it's going to change this year than the last two years, but before they had a, uh, Port Adelaide had that China game early in the year and their buyer didn't fall on the multi-buy round. So it was always hard picking a port out of a laid player from the start because there's always one week there where your player wasn't playing. But what really helps you with the port guys post their buy and the Gold Coast to date was that they were playing throughout the three multi buy rounds. So it was a big advantage holding those players. So both the last two years I've picked up Chad Wingard who'd had poor years up until that date. I thought, well, it's through the buy rounds only your top 18 players play. So Worst case scenario, he gets a real bad score. It's not probably going to affect my team because only my top 18 scores will count. But he's gone on. So I think last year when I picked him up, he'd averaged 64 or something up until around seven or eight. And then I got him in and he averaged 98 for me for the rest of the year and ended up being a, a top six defender in that, or forward in that time. And yeah, the previous year was similar. I think he was averaging 75. And for the period I held him, he averaged and. Oh, sorry, 95 or something like that. So um, he's been good and yeah, if I ever see him, I'll certainly have to thank him for his services because he's been a big part in my, my last two years. What about who doesn't get thanks? So who's
0: been an absolute shocking pick for you?
1: Well, Michael Walters is one of my favourite... I'm a Frio fan and I love him as a player and I think he's a very good player and a very good midfielder. I think he's got a bit of X factor and great in congestion and composure and good skills. So... When he's in there, he does very well and he's scored well in the past. And I always, I'm always a believer that he should be a midfielder and there's always opportunities with either Fife's either injured or now Neil's gone. Mundy playing forward, I'll, for the last two years, I've always thought, surely this is the time where they're going to put Walters in the midfield. And I've got that call wrong a couple of times. So last year, I, I picked Walters up for three weeks where he yeah, would have been, yeah, scored poorly for me. And this year coming again, where with Blakely out injured. Neil gone. There's obviously need for someone in the midfield and I think he'd be the obvious candidate. Docs have picked up a few small forwards. Um, Matea and Ballantyne are finally in decent shape. So I think he should play forward. He's underpriced, but I'm probably not going to make that call just because I know he's burnt me in the past. Cool. So
0: apart from fantasy, how do you go in, say, AFL tipping? Tipping I've never been
1: good at. To a point that I now don't bother tipping. It's hard because I, I like looking for value and um, people who might outperform, and I don't like how tipping—you get one point if you tip the winner, and you don't get it if you don't. So I always used to just tip for upsets if I thought someone was a bit of a roughie. and if they win, you only still get the one point. Not that you should, in my opinion, you should always get their odds. You should get three point seven five odds if they're paying three hundred seventy five. So. I don't really like tipping, so I've avoided that the last five years and just gone straight on the fantasy. Yeah, cool. And I guess just to wrap
0: up with, what sort of tips would you leave people who are maybe just starting out in fantasy?
1: Yeah, picking players you think are going to improve on what what their price is 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 my big thing. I've put out a season guide this year available at my website, which is marerasmagic.com, and that goes through my starting side on the last couple of years and talking through that, talking through the rule changes, where I think's going to change, players I think might break out, the new Ruck rule, good options, options for Ruck, and then I've gone through all those stats I talked about, points per minute, price per points per minute, where they rank per price, and a little commentary on every single player in the comp, which took a lot of time for me early in the year. So that's out, which should give guys a good leg up going into the season. Um, that's 30 bucks, and all that money goes to the Starlight Foundation. So it's a good opportunity to get some good intel. I've put everything out there for these ones. And, yeah, you can make a donation while you're there as well. Cool. And
0: I guess I love forecasting, just something outlandish. Can you give us your Premier, Brownlee medalist, fantasy standout and fantasy dud?
1: Yeah. Brownlow medalist, let's say Patrick Cripps, good North boy, dominated the. Not that I've watched any of it, but I heard he dominated the AFLX, and he's um he's probably my favourite player in the competition. Premiers, I think um I think Melbourne will win the premiership. they good, good age bracket and eager and keen. Fantasy star will be Patrick Cripps as well. I think he'll go from his 110 to maybe a 120 average and be an elite player. And fantasy duds, I think he won't go worse than last year, but I think someone like a Dusty Martin who had a pretty subdued year last year, especially with fantasy, people predicting him to go back up to his 110 ways, I think he'll just stay at that 95 average. Thank you very much for your
0: time and your insights into the AFL fantasy world. Awesome. Thanks for having me.